Hello, I'm Dr. Maxine David, and I'm very pleased to have here with me today two editors of JCMS, one former, one current. We start with Professor Simon Bulmer, who is at the University of Sheffield. I'm sure he'll be known to everybody. And Dr. Tony Hastrup, who is at University of Kent at Canterbury. Thank you both very, very much for agreeing to do this. Thank you. Uh, so if we could begin maybe with you, Simon, mm -hmm. um, just talk us, uh, you know, maybe share some of your memories of being a JCMS editor. I believe you were editor with Andrew Scott, who was an economist, mm -hmm. um, from 91 to 98, is that right? Uh, 98, that's right, okay. yes. Yeah. So I think especially, especially Tony might be very, very glad to hear a little bit about those early days, and I think it would be very interesting for us to just get some sense of what has changed, evolved, if you like, in the fortunes of JCMS and, the, and the, our discipline. Okay, I think a lot has, uh, has changed. Uh, the whole technology of uh, running a journal, the ownership of the journal, the founding editor of the journal, Uwe Kitzinger, was a stakeholder in the journal uh, until midway through our uh, tenure as editors. Okay. Uh, there was no such thing as Manuscript Central. I remember Drew doing, Andrew Scott doing, uh, setting up a software system. We didn't really... We were at the early stages of email, you didn't have Skype and all these kinds of things, so we we were meeting a lot. He was in Edinburgh, I was in Manchester, we were meeting a lot to have editorial mm -hmm. meetings. Fortunately, we got on, got on and still get on uh, very well. He was my best man, actually, um, oh. <laughs> and I was his. Um, uh, so uh, it was quite a sort of social event doing it. When we took over, we took over from uh, Peter Robson at St. Andrews University, who's an economist of international integration. And the journal had a very economics uh, orientation, including comparative regional integration, which is rather uh, less on the agenda, if at all, uh, at the present time. And we, our editorial platform was to rebalance with politics uh, and also to bring in uh, the intra interface with legal studies. So the the comparative work that was being done then was that that was most mostly kind of economically directed, not much to do with mm -hmm. political science at all. Yes, that's right. There was a lot of sort of customs union theory, looking at West mm -hmm. Africa, and then later, while we were still editors at the North American Free Trade Area, these kinds of things. So. Mm -hmm comparative perspectives, mm -hmm. um, which today in the journal I don't think find much resonance. <laughs> I, uh, I think, Tony, you're, you're talking about doing more work on comparative regionalism now, are you? I mean, I think um, precisely because the journal sort of swung another way, there wasn't that much comparative regionalism, then you don't necessarily find people submitting on comparative regionalism. I know that the editors that we've just taken over for um, Michelle Sini and Amy Verdon had this as part of their agenda, right? So they, you know, they, they even went on a trip to Asia where they were looking at sort of the regionalisms in Asia. And if you actually look at some of the um, past issues, so probably in the last three to four years, you will find some articles on comparative regionalism, um, people working on Latin America, for example. But of course, to a large extent, uh, 
European Union is often the reference point. When we took over in July, we were quite explicit that we did want comparative regionalism back. We did want more interdisciplinarity because we, we do, um, we've accepted that it sort of swung the other way. So, so I wonder in terms of that swing, do you think that each view that that is um, more to do with perceptions of the journal so people just stopped submitting on it? Or is it actually much, much more about events in the world and scholarship following events and then you know, kind of getting these peaks and troughs and regionalism is just back on the agenda? Or how would you explain it? I'm not sure I can comment about on whether regionalism is especially back on the agenda, but I, I mean, I think there are probably three or four things that drive the way the journal comes out, how it looks mm-hmm. to the the outside reader. One is, as you mentioned, uh, events. There's obviously a bit of event following in European integration studies. The second is there are sort of paradigm changes over time in the disciplines. So in politics, the governance turn, constructivism, yeah. you know, more narrative approaches and so on. So you see then Europeanization, you see those coming through sequentially. I think a third factor is the external environment. Um, English journals, refereed journals became the norm not only for Brits and Americans, but across the continent. So they're far more continental uh, submitters than before. Whereas on the other side, the structure of the research excellence framework, or REE before that, in the UK, meant some tailing off of economists because they have a hierarchy of journals that they have to publish in, and the journal wasn't on the list. So, you know, applied policy you tend to get from people in management schools or outside the UK system because of that ref constraint. The other thing in a limited way, and perhaps even more limited now, is the way that the editors steer the policy of the journal for their mm. for their tenure. And I think probably at the time we were editing it, we... Um, through, for instance, the 30th anniversary of the journal had a double special issue with some pretty path-breaking articles like Liberal Intergovernmentalism by mm-hmm. Moravchik, The Capability Expectations Gap by Chris Hill, uh, uh, and others that were worked by Joe Weiler, for instance, on the Law Politics Interface. We were able to steer it in a way that I'm not sure whether that still exists, but Tony will perhaps correct mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would say to a large extent that exists. I mean, of course, you're absolutely right that, you know, th- there's been a change in the system, right? We don't necessarily commission special issues. We have a lot of submissions. But in terms of the submissions we have, they're quite diverse from the different, you can say sort of from the different um, disciplines within which JCMS is ranked. So we do get submissions from law, from economics, um, from political science, and, and from international relations. Um, it, I think it's, JCMS tries to retain a sort of generalist audience. So on, on the one hand, yes, we do want this sort of different disciplines, and increasingly we are actually encouraging interdisciplinarity. So perhaps now we don't get um, as many um, economics articles that have lots of econometric models yeah. because we do want um, those, we do want people reading JCMS um, sociologists to get something from economics articles. And to an extent, I think we are, in that sense, shaping the journal because we are saying to economists that you have to learn 
to communicate <laughs> to others, not just through mm. um, numbers and symbols. What What are those conversations like? And, and you know, I mean, it would be interesting as well, Simon, to hear from from you because because you had an, an economist and and then you had a political scientist. How how did you bring those together? But perhaps you first, Tony, about how difficult are those conversations to have, especially with very established scholars who, you know, rightly think they know their stuff and their audience? I mean, I think the way that we've approached it so far, bearing in mind that, you know, we've only recently taken over is often people are submitting research that they consider to be quite good because they do know what the standing of the journal is. And often they are um, writing on um, topical issues, but that would have quite, that would be sustainable. So if we, as editors, if we think that it's a good thing, this is something that we can sort of communicate unofficially to um, colleagues about the changes that they would need to make in order for us to pass this to reviewers, mm-hmm. right? And obviously, because we're looking for a diversity of reviewers, because again, we are trying to foster this sort of interdisciplinarity, they do tend to take um, our advice in that sense if we really think that this is something that the journal should want to take um, forward. I think from uh, the perspective of 1991, uh, it might be interesting to note that we had written a an editorial about how we wanted to take the journal, but did not actually, uh, including a balance between economics and politics, and didn't have a, a politics manuscript to publish until one came in and saved the day from Mike Shackleton, as I uh, recall. Um, otherwise, the statement would have looked a bit empty, uh, frankly. I think also their interdisciplinarity, I mean, there was, that was a kind of multidisciplinarity issue. Interdisciplinarity is an example I would give one that uh, we had on law and politics, which was something that we kind of pushed uh, because of our um, editorial policy. I, I think that's, you know, this pushing special issues in a particular way and trying to corral people facilitated then with editorial budgets i don't know how it is now mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. we could we were able to do that once or twice and perhaps that also might uh, allow me to say something about the annual review uh, yeah, so we, I, I think I, I i mean we're obviously all familiar with the annual review but i have no idea how that came about and and, and why it came about really mm. Well, that came about during one of these editorial meetings that happened to take place in Glossop between, between Andrew Scott and myself, that we we recognised that there were similar uh, exercises in German, there was a Jahrbuch Europäische uh, Integration, much bigger, there were yearbooks of that kind mm-hmm. of thing, but there was no sort of record of what had happened and we thought that that was a gap and that was uh, something to pursue with the journal to be part of the package but outsource the editor of the annual review is always different from the um, Mm. editor of the the journal because it's a different kind of commissioned article basis but that soon developed in trying to develop different disciplines as part of uh, getting that record for the year. So, I mean, you had quite a long editorship, so how much did that... So when, when did the annual review start and, and how, how quickly did it start to evolve? 
you know, I, I'm not sure exactly when that would be. I think around about 93, 94, we, we had a bit of a spurt there. I suppose the first year you're trying to find your feet and there's stuff mm -hmm. following through that's already in the pipeline from the previous editors. And it was around about 92, 93 that we tried to make our impact one way was through this 30th anniversary special edition and conference that the Ford Foundation and UACs uh, supported. And then the annual review, I think, followed on from that. So we'd then more or less set our direction and things could go a little bit more on a regular flow uh, after that. But I'm going to have to look now. Yeah. Uh, in the online to see when it did actually appear. It's always slightly complicated because you're doing a review of the previous year. So yeah. sometimes it's, you know, those two things uh, uh, lead to a little bit of confusion. But, but it's interesting because, I mean, you're, you're, you're both talking about changes. I mean, you've got quite a, a long gap between your different editorships, mm. but there's an awful lot of continuity there as well. Mm. I mean, obviously, I know, Tony, you've kept the annual review on, you've appointed new editors. Why do you think it's still an important thing to do? I think, I mean, t to a large extent, we see the role of JCMS as being sort of in the bridge between um, academia and the research that is done in academia and non-academics, whether that's policy officials or um, just those who are interested in uh, European politics, the European Union, or how Europe interacts with the rest of the world. And in that sense, the annual review does still serve a special function because it is recording what's happening in Europe over the year, but it's also able to highlight things that might not um, appear in the news, but is sort of essential to uh, policy making, uh, but at the same time sort of showcases the type of new research that is coming out in a, a very specific area. So we do think that it's quite important um, to keep the annual review as that bridge and we understand from um, for example uh, policy officials who use it um, in, in the Commission that it is useful to know what academics are thinking um, um, and how they are communicating what the European Union does but it also challenges their own practices as well because they don't you know they don't necessarily get that in the echo chamber as is often the case for, for most of us so I think um, we do think it's a very nice compliment. It serves a different function, as Simon has said, but it's a very nice compliment uh, to the main journal. And let's hope that in the current context they are reading it. I somehow doubt it, but, <laughs> but there we go. Mm. You, you have, you particularly, Simon, have really talked uh, essentially, I think, about agenda setting powers, that you've really had the power um, in that time to set the agenda and decide on where things needed to go. And, and, and I'm sure that that was the product of a lot of conversation about what was, you know, the types of things that you were talking about in terms of external events. Um, do you, do you feel that you have got agenda setting power, Tony, or, you know, you, you have a publisher obviously behind you now, and then there are things like the ref and all of these different structures. So do you think that that constrains you a lot more? as editors? Um, <laughs> yes and no. To a certain extent, we are constrained actually by the sheer volume of what we are getting that is actually good work, mm. right? So um, one can set the agenda when you know you really believe that um, certain things are not being given um, the, the sort of space that they should really be accorded. 
but we are getting the substantive volume of um, of submissions. And to an extent, as an editor, you don't want to play gatekeeper to what should be coming in and what shouldn't be coming in, especially if, again, that work is good and it, it is relevant. Um, but of course, you still want to maintain quality. Where we do, I would say, editors have a bit of power um, or influence in shaping is with regards to the special issue submissions. Mm -hmm. So while... Um, it's not often the case that now we commission anything because there are so many people willing to put together special issues on their own. We can determine that, you know, we've had some something on monetary policy in the last 10 years. Maybe that's not the direction that we really want to go, right? Have we really paid attention to what e economics is saying about Europe and European Union or European Union's international relations lately? Maybe we really want to focus on that particular theme. Um, in my experience so far, and I've only been through one round of it, um, the submissions for special issues are ext of extremely high quality, which is almost um, counterintuitive to what one might hear about, you know, what special issues are. People often prefer to submit um, their mm. article independently. Extremely high quality, and we've decided as an editorial team that we will... If it's in um, our power, we will try to give space to those voices that are um, are not often heard, whether in term, in disciplinary terms or in methodological or, or, or theoretical. So, you know, that makes me think of three things. Um, first of all, about competition. You know, so how much competition did you have with other journals at, at the time? You know, you're definitely working in a very, very crowded market. Um, the volume of um, submissions very, very high for JCMS. I'm just wondering what that was like under your stewardship. Um, and then the third question, you know, maybe a tricky one, um, given this professionalization agenda that we've got. Um, and, a, and you were talking about gatekeeping, um, Tony. But I, I wonder as well about uh, whether we have been constrained too much by a fear of accusations of cronyism such that we don't commission pieces in the way that that you did for quite different reasons. Um, but, you know, it, is that problematic in terms of the fact that um, there are things that need to be said about certain issues and they're not being said? And the only way that really that they'll be published is if somebody is actually saying, OK, we would really like you to write on this because we think it's really important and, and relevant. So, and I wonder if we've lost the space for that. So perhaps I can go to you first, Simon. Yeah, um, I mean, those are three really interesting, uh, three really interesting points. I mean, we were conscious about competition at the time when we were trying to take the journal forward because Jeremy Richardson was just launching the journal European Public Policy and we'd come of a period with our previous editor where it had been economics focused and if we were going to have a balance of disciplines we had to be careful that they that the politics wasn't going all in the direction of uh, JEP. So uh, we were conscious about competition and that's perhaps one of the reasons why we were proactive in commissioning. Of course those kinds of ethical considerations at that time were not so stringent as they perhaps are now so we we were able uh, to take some shortcuts which we thought you know were in the interest of the viability of the journal and of uh, scholarship uh, in in general 
um, it might be regarded differently now. Tony will have something to say, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure I can't recall from 20 years ago the volume of submissions. They went up progressively during the course of our tenure uh, as editors. But, I mean, two things. The European studies community has grown significantly mm -hmm. over the period. And secondly, the amount of contributions from uh, non-English language first speakers, if I put it like that, particularly mm -hmm. from the European continent, has increased as peer-reviewed uh, articles became the norm there uh, as well, whereas when we started off that was still sort of in its infancy, so yeah. Well, I mean, I think in a way we've not had any need to uh, commission yet. I mean, I say this two months into the job, of <laughs> <laughs> and we've not had any need to commission um, linked to the volume, right? So JCMS, um, according to our last count, gets just under uh, 300 um, submissions per annum. Sometimes it goes a bit over that. Uh, and from a variety, as I said, from a variety of disciplines, um, and so we've not, at least at this point, there's not been any need to commission. Now, of course, in, in the context of those volumes that we're getting, um, precisely because of the competition, there might be a sense that perhaps JCMS doesn't publish certain themes, or um, and that the other journals, competitive journals, are perhaps more open to certain ideas. Um, and we think, at least the editorial, the new editorial team thinks that that is certainly something that we do have to confront head on. Mm -hmm. But this is where, um, as Simon said, um, we have to look at the volume of um, the sort of t the scholars themselves, and this is where professional associations come in. Uh, for the most part, precisely because JCMS is part owned by UASIS, our um, our view of who the scholars are are often from within the UASIS community or UASIS type community, and increasingly the UASIS type community is very much political science, international relations. Um, to an extent, some law, we are getting some sociologists now. We want to change this, and that might actually mean, as editors, engaging with professional associations that might not necessarily be, or might not have been on our radar, right? It is about stepping outside of our comfort zone. It might be about going to other regions, going to Latin America and saying, you know, thinking, who, you know, who are the people studying regionalisms in, in Latin America? Who are the scholars who've done comparative work? about Europe and European politics in Latin America, and they might be in anthropology, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And that would, you know, that, that would, be, you know, related to the previous question around agenda setting, I think, given the competition, the um, structural constraints relating to the relationship between journal editors, professional associations, mm -hmm. and um, the publisher, this might be the way to set an agenda but we do hope that in the at least in the five years that we've been contracted for, this would be our approach. Because we do think that the previous editors, Simon included, have done a fantastic job in terms of establishing JCMS within um, um, United Kingdom with, and to a large extent continental Europe. But there's very much a, an Anglosphere bias, if you want to put it that way even within sort of um, the European context. Yeah, so, so, so that, that kind of makes me think about two things. 
One, we've obviously got UACs at 50, um, and unfortunately in, in the year where we're, we're, we're still trying to see our way out of the European Union, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that you two probably join me in hoping that we never see our way out of the European Union. That's a different matter. But, um, but you, you've mentioned Anglosphere, you've mentioned um, language, and at a panel, a publishing panel, we had a very, very interesting question posed to us about um, how um, book and journal editors felt about republishing work um, in an, the, that was originally published in another language or otherwise allowing uh, the author to republish the work in their country. And I'm wondering what you think, um, you know, from, from your experience as academics and, um, uh, and editors, um, but in the context of Brexit particularly, are we going to have to respond to that much more? And um, do, do we see a time when actually English, the, you know, the, the English as the publishing language, if you like, I think for our discipline, it's fair to say that that, that might shift? Hmm. Well, I am not convinced about that in the near term. I think, you know, the quality of the English language journals on the European Union is quite different from those in German or French, if I think of those journals. So I think that's likely to continue for a while. And insofar as maybe continental academics are going to teach in English to perhaps attract some of our students or our overseas students, they're going to write in English. So you know, we may be on the margins as a non-member, but I'm not sure we will be as an English language. And after all, a lot of the publishing of European Union studies is by uh, publishers based in Britain. I'm talking mm. about book publishers here rather than journal publishers, but that too, uh, a certain degree. So I think that I think that's going to I think it's going to continue. To be honest, I mean, I I I would say I, I don't think even not in the medium term, I don't think that publication in English is going to stop in any way, shape or form. However, I think, at least from our conversations with the, the publisher, there is, a, um, there is a desire to keep growing the market, you know, to, to, to put it in crass terms. And they are devising new ways of how to grow the market. And some of that includes, for example, um, translating abstracts into other languages right uh, so our publisher for example have some um some of their catalog uh, abstracts translated into mandarin uh in, into into spanish for example and i think you know perhaps in the long term i can't promise that it will be during our tenure at all because there's already so much to do mm. um something like the journal of common market studies i don't think it would be amiss to have some abstracts, maybe not for every article, but for for relevant articles in uh, Portuguese, uh, in Spanish, um, Chinese, Polish, Polish. Mm. <laughs> um, just so you know, thinking we, we, the world is um, facing a demographic change, and I think you know again we do think in very European studies term. European studies doesn't necessarily have a, a, a sort of disciplinary ranking. So JCMS, for example, is ranked in international relations, in political science, in economics, which means we are also speaking to this sort of um, 
broader disciplinary trends and broader disciplinary changes. Um, and I, I mean, I think it would be advantageous if we can, it can only be advantageous if we can reach more people. Um, but I certainly have no desire for English to stop being the lingua franca because I'm biased that way. It is my, <laughs> it is my language. <laughs> but I think there are other ways of sort of talking um, to others around the world. I mean, the point you made about translating articles, I, if, you know, as a JCMS editor in the past, that would be something I'd be taking up with Blackwoods because, mm -hmm. you know, everybody assigns mm -hmm. their copyright and then it's sort of in Blackwoods' hands. So you've almost got to have that conversation about how far that's possible with them on an ad hoc basis or on a on a systematic yeah. basis, that's not really in the hands of the um, of the journal editors, actually. Mm. Mm. But it's worth worth investigating. Yeah, I mean, I just think that there's something you know there, that there are um, there's something about learning ultimately we're academics because we we want this exchange of mm. of knowledge and wisdom and uh, and 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 I wonder sometimes as well whether it's wholly ethical to really hold fast to a line where. English is the is the language of publishing. When actually that that means that e even the most fluent of um, speakers, when they they are much more fluent, obviously in their native language. Um, but also, if part of what we're supposed to be doing is to reach out to wider society, then we can't assume that everybody is going to have the same you know level of language acquisition. So. Um, you know, I, I, so it has just, the, that question was posed to us mm. and it has had me thinking since then. So I think it's maybe something that we need to think a little bit. But I think you're probably right. This is much more for the publishers. Um, than, yeah. yeah. I mean, for uh, those newer to the profession, if I could put it like that, I mean, there was a journal that was bilingual, French and English. Uh, it's now the Journal of European Integration came out of Canada and where the French language aspect fell by the wayside. I don't know whether that was part of its uh, transition to a new publisher, quite where that, how that happened, but the Interesting question. directions, you know, the direction of travels the other way, I think. If we could just move on a little bit to social media, all right, because, you know, we, we've talked about the fact that you're spanning quite a long time between you as JCMS editors. I know that you blog, Simon, but you're, I don't think you're on Twitter or anything like that. I know that you're on Twitter. Um, why do you blog? Why are you on Twitter? And how important do you think either or both of these are for scholars today? I think the reason I blog is to try and give short and pithy interventions for a different kind of audience than the one demanding the full 8,000-word rigour uh, on particular uh, issues and in the hope that it gets picked up amongst a wider audience, not just of academics, but also of uh, policymakers. And I think that's going with the flow of academia, impact these kinds of things. So that I do restrict myself, though, to, to blogging. I've not got involved in Twitter as yet. Ah, as yet. <laughs> um, just to follow up from Simon, I think blogging can create a very nice interface between sort of academic um, research, but also um, sort of intervention into societal issues, sort of beyond the abstract. Yes, indeed, anyone can read a 200-word abstract, but sort of in 
terms of translating quite um, specific academic research to a, a sort of a policy intervention. Um, blogging, I think, sort of helps with that, and it is something that I think um, is very much accepted by um, the academic community these days. But I mean, from a more instrumental perspective, things like blogging and indeed the use of Facebook or Twitter to sort of promote uh, journal articles um, has been shown to sort of increase the citation rates of journal articles. Um, this is not anecdotal. I mean, we've sort of chatted over sort of the last three, five years on, on, on some of JCMS, the articles have done quite well, have been impacted by the authors having blogged and linked mm -hmm. back to the article, mainly because of, we have a proliferation of knowledge now, um, but we don't have enough time. But if you're reading an academic's blog, you can then decide, well, actually, this might be relevant to my research. I will click on the link that goes directly to that article and read um, the full article. So it is, I mean, when we um, make the bid for JCMS, we're very clear that we would like to have a blog that linked um, author's, article, um, author's articles to how they sort of communicate to the general, well, to be the general public, but also some of their own um, colleagues. Now, of course, we're not going to force anybody to blog if they don't want to blog, because I think, you know, a lot of people still sort of find it uh, odd. <laughs> um, it's a polite way of putting it. But we do intend to give people that opportunity, and so many people are already doing it, um, mm -hmm. that we, we think that it, it would definitely um, be a good idea. And clearly, I mean, with, with Twitter, the JCMS account sort of tweets new issues. Um, we tweet out um, articles that we think might be relevant to something that is going on um, contemporarily. Um, so we, we we found it useful, um, and um, hopefully <laughs> we get more Twitter followers so that we can spread the word even more. But in terms of also, by being on Twitter, I am able to, uh, as well as my other um, the other editors, we're able to sort of gauge what kind of new research is being done. We can tell people, well, we think that this is interesting. Have you thought of perhaps submitting to JCMS? Um, it will still have to go through um, the review process. I, it's not sort of the direct straight commissioning. But I think by being on Twitter, you do have um, a lot more access to a lot more people. But it's, all, it's also a bit of uh, a bit of work, I think. I mean, that's a, a, a slightly different point on blogging. I mean, another point about blogging is you can get comment out there quickly mm. to sort of lead time Absolutely. of getting into production. Something like Brexit, mm. of course. You <laughs> want to have quick people hungry to hear mm. views, and it's still early days for things coming out in journals. So it may be the first ideas that then go on to a journal mm -hmm. article, whereas you're talking about... Uh, when it's already been yeah, done. Yeah. Exactly. But I think it's both, really, because I yeah, think in exactly. the end... Um, I mean, one of the things I also like about blogging, which can be daunting, is sort of it's open source peer review here, especially with the kind that you're talking about. Right? So, I mean, I've also written on Brexit and you're having to, in a way, you're communicating with people who may or may not agree with you. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, they're putting out comments there and you're having to engage with them. But for me, it's actually been quite good because it's forced me to sort of think. So when I do then sort of translate that into the more um, academic piece, I've already sort of engaged with different types of people than I would have otherwise engaged with. Mm. And I think you're absolutely right. On a topic like Brexit, you know, it's 
it almost defies any sort of methodological or theoretical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it still retains its originality in that sense. So, the, I, I mean, I found that in the last 18 months, the best way to get out things is through um, academically linked um, and blog, uh, academically linked blogs. But I think also, you know, you can start that way, but also sort of refer. Yeah, um, so it's a, it's a circular it's a process circle, in some sense. And we've yeah. seen a lot of academics um, doing that, actually. And it's always um, the positive, not that it doesn't have a negative, because it is, again, quite time-consuming. It can be quite instrumental. The positive has always been sort of much more high visibility for the work that colleagues are doing. And I think for that, it is quite worth it. UAC is at 50. I think that um, it's only right we should end by me asking you the easiest question, which is, are you positive? Are you um, negative about the future of European studies in the context of everything that is going on? Or are you thinking that in 50 years' time, someone will be celebrating UACs at 100? Interesting question. Um, I'm reasonably confident that UACs will be continuing on to the long term. I don't know about 100. I mean, we, that's contingent on things beyond Brexit. I mean, you know, there's a whole literature on disintegration. If that gained any traction, if disintegration is a phenomenon gained traction, then of course we'd be in a different place. Brexit is a little bit more limited. Of course, you know, for most most of us in UACs, it's a matter of uh, deep concern. I went to Loughborough in 1972 before we joined the EU to read European yeah. studies. Um, I'll be reaching normal retirement age in 2019. This is probably my academic career in a way. Um, so, of course, I, I regard that uh, from a particular personal standpoint that you can imagine. But... Uh, I think UACs and the study of European Union is more durable, even than me. <laughs> so. um, I, I think, well, I think the same way. Um, I mean, I, I can't really say 100 years precisely because of what Simon has said. There are so many other things going on. Um, you know, to not be too pessimistic, the issues around uh, possibilities of nuclear war now that, you know, even us European not, studies not experts... Not to be too pessimistic. Not to be too pessimistic. <laughs> uh, we do have to consider. But, I mean, I, I think my view, though, is given the co-constitution of uh, an institution like UASIS, European Union studies and European Union itself, what UASIS is in the long term might be different from what it is now. Um, I hope for the better, but I mean, it's not necessarily something we can tell. But I do think that UACs will last longer than Brexit, even if Brexit happens. Um, and that UACs might actually be invigorated um, by Brexit, contrary to what people might fear right now. But we, who are members of UACs, who are in the scholarly communities publishing in JCMS, but also in, in, in JSA and other um, journals, must be willing to put in the work to ensure that um, UASIS has this uh, longevity that we hope for. Well, it's good to hear that something is in our hands. I first came to the UASIS conference in 1976. I think there are two things that uh, count for its uh, longevity. One is, at that stage, it was very much an invitation-only conference. Yeah. It was in 
January. Uh, uh, so now it's much more participatory. Mm-hmm. And second, it was very much a, a UK conference, and now it's much more a European-wide membership. And both those features, I think, are good for the vibrancy of UACs in the longer term, whereas if we've been in the model from 1976, that kind of period, I think we would you know, be facing much greater challenges with Brexit. So real credit to the various executive directors we've had over the years, as well as the um, European Studies academic community. Thank you both so much for giving up your time. This has been really, really fascinating. I'm sure a lot of people will be calling upon you for more memories. Thank you. <laughs>